Welcome to Centering, the Asian American Christian podcast. This season, we're discussing the ways critical race theory interacts with Asian American Christianity. Join us each week for a conversation about race and grace. I'm Daniel Lee. And I'm Alex Jun. We are your hosts. Thank you for joining us. Welcome back to a new season of Centering, the Asian American Christian podcast. My name is Daniel Lee, and I will be your host for this season. Just to briefly introduce myself, I serve as a professor of theology and Asian American studies at Fuller Seminary. I'm also the academic dean for Fuller's Center for Asian American Theology Ministry, which produces uh, this podcast. This season is a bit different from the previous ones in that the whole season is going to be a conversation between me and my friend and neighbor, Dr. Alex John, on the topic of critical race theory. Alex, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes. Thank you so much, Dr. Lee. What a treat to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Long time listener, first time uh, caller. Uh, My name is Alex Jun. I'm a professor of higher education at Azusa Pacific University, uh, teaching PhD students in the Department of Higher Education. And I've been here now 13 years. Uh, Before that, I was serving as a faculty member and an administrator at the University of Southern California, fight on. Uh, but it's wonderful to be able to be in this space, especially as, a, as an academic, uh, someone who holds to a Christian faith. I'm a ruling elder in my presby- local Presbyterian church in Orange County. And uh, it's a nice opportunity to be at a Christian university, uh, to be able to consolidate some of my Christian faith with secular ideologies and worldviews that are taught. Thank you, Alex. Yeah, I'm just super excited to actually uh, do something with you. We've known each other for a while, and (laughs) he's my neighbor. Like We live really close to each other. I can jog over to his house. Now, uh, you might be wondering, why are we uh, having this conversation with Alex, you know, on this topic of critical race theory? Well, the topic itself, obviously, is has become kind of a flashpoint for a lot of people. And there's been a lot of discussions about it, almost a controversy. And uh, the other side of it, I think Alex is being, you know, his introduction was a bit short. Uh, he's also kind of being modest in the sense that he's not only a, a ruling elder, but he also served as a moderator of Presbyterian Church in the USA. I mean, sorry, <laughs> moderator of the Presbyterian Church in America, PCA. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, as well as, uh, you know, he actually, him and his colleague, uh, Christopher Collins and other people have written uh, three books, uh, White Out, Understanding White Privilege and Dominance in Modern Age, Why Jesus, the Architecture of Racism in Religion and Education, and White Evolution, the Constant Struggle for Racial Consciousness. So, you know, Alex has invested a lot of energy academically on this topic. He's an expert, and we thought this would be a really uh, important discussion and somebody from somebody who actually knows what they're talking about. And also, uh, even on my end, you know, I teach, uh, there's a lot of uh, critical race theory that I incorporate in my teaching because I teach Asian American studies and also Asian American theology and Asian American ministry. So in this sense, uh, we're excited to have this conversation, hopefully, you know, shed some light and also uh, clarify some of the topics and terms that kind of get, gets kicked around. Now, so let's just kind of starting off. I think we want to try to figure out, uh, get a handle on what critical race theory is, and then hopefully we can kind of talk about what gets lumped under critical race theory, which is a different, slightly different question. But let's start with 
the question of what is critical race theory? Yeah, it's a good question. It's an important question to start with. Critical race theory is just that. It's a theoretical lens. It's a constructual lens or a model by which some scholars uh, are trying to understand the problems of racism and white supremacy in North America. It originally started as this uh, theoretical framework of critical legal studies by uh, Derek Bell, a Harvard University law professor and others, uh, trying to understand systems and laws that are in place. And that evolved into critical race theory in social sciences and eventually in education. That's the theoretical lens by which we understand critical race theory. And it's important to know these are academic constructs. So what are some of the key ideas or tenets of critical race theory? Like, what are we talking about here? What are, because I mean, obviously racism, yes, we get it. But what are these features? Yeah. So within this theoretical framework, there are many tenets of critical race theory, the first being the permanence of racism. The idea that racism is not just a random and isolated event, but it is actually a permanent aspect in American society. So for people of color, black and indigenous citizens experience this in the United States. It is always going to be, there will always be racism in society. So that's the permanence of racism is one of them. Another one uh, is interest convergence. And this is the idea that uh, historically oppressed people can advance socially and politically insofar as it, it benefits and aligns with the interests of those in power. Well, let's start with those two points just to get us started to say those are the two major tenets. There are several others that we can get to throughout the, the podcast, but thinking about those two just as a framework of understanding the systems and the laws that are in place in this case, North America and the United States. Thank you, Alex. One of the things that we wanted to kind of clarify was that obviously there are a lot of, there's so many resources out there, there are podcasts and there are articles out there and books on critical race theory. What we wanted to do in this podcast was for both of us who are really committed to the church, who are committed Christians, we wanted to have a conversation that's actually not as academic, that will be rooted in obviously theory and uh, in academic research, but that really uh, informs Christians, it really informs pastors, ministry leaders. And so they will talk about like, what do I do with this thing and, and what does it mean? So we'll start unpacking different features of it, but I thought it would be beneficial to, for us to talk about why is this controversial? Like what is the, what, why are people freaking out about this thing? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, let's, let's look at the first two tenets that we uh, just talked about, right? The idea that racism is permanent in the United States. I think back to 2008, and there were many people in American society with the election of President Barack Obama, who said, we are now post-racial. The fact that you had one individual black man uh, become president of the United States somehow eradicated all of the racism in society, right? I think that speaks to a very Western understanding of individualism, this uh, deeply rooted, almost toxic individualism that refuses to recognize systems. 
it's interesting because a lot of the critiques of President Obama, even within good liberal progressive spaces, they were critical of him because he couldn't make the changes that they perhaps expected a prominent black president to make. Well, that goes back to the idea that racism is so endemic in society that one person can't fix it. It's part of a system. And only where it benefits those in power do you actually see some change. It's still a form of window dressing. Well, it just smacks against rugged individualism for some people in Western society on the one hand. And on the other hand, and this is a lot of my white brothers and sisters in the Lord who feel incredibly guilty when they hear this to say, gosh, simply because of my whiteness, my color, you're saying that I am part of the racism that's in society. Yeah. I mean, so we're on the next episode, we'll talk about this idea of whiteness and white supremacy because there's a lot, lot to unpack over there. Uh, so you know, we have like a whole season of talking about this thing because there's so many dimensions we want to talk about and hopefully connect to uh, Christian life in terms of what, what should be our response, what do we do with it? Obviously, like everything else, you know, in our world, uh, there is good and bad and sometimes it's a mix. So we're trying to sort this out, right? I remember you know, the first time I got to connect with you, Alex, it was actually when I uh, wrote something for, I think, Fuller, I want the magazine or something. I was talking about how as Asian Americans, we have to navigate the black and white binary of kind of racial discussion. And mm. Alex was like, hey, you do that stuff? I do too. And I was like, well, I, I mean, I, I'm not deep in it, but I do I, I, I interact with his ideas. And I think there's this idea of kind of navigating kind of a complex reality of what's happening. Uh, you know, I, along with that line, so we'll keep on doing this throughout the whole season, but along with this lines, uh, this other controversial aspect of it, right? Uh, and maybe uh, we'll talk about it this uh, just in this episode because I don't think we have to go really, really deep into it. Is this connection to Marxism, right? Because as you know, early critical race theory uh, theorists were just critical theorists. They were just studying critical theory, which basically comes out of uh, Frankfurt School of Social Research with people like Mark Hochmeyer and other people. And they actually did have Marxist roots. That is, that is, that is true, right? So, uh, and of course, you know, there's actually problems of atheism with Marxism and, you know, uh, what happened in Soviet Union, you know, uh, um, cultural revolution. There's all these crazy things that people go, people hear Marxism and they just feel like they think about the absolute worst devil, demonic things in the world, especially in the U.S., um, you know, what are your thoughts about that connection with Marxism? Because even the word structural, I mean, we're talking about it from a Marxist framework in a sense. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, the origins and many of those who hold to these theoretical frameworks, the original founders, were certainly holding to Marxist ideology. I could understand that, um, especially when you talk about notions of power, right? Uh, and very much a concept that's difficult to grasp. When we talk about power, those who are marginalized, those who are dispossessed versus those who are either directly in positions of power or look like the people who are in positions of power and therefore benefit from systems that are designed for them. And so I think that's an important element to recognize. But Daniel, you're talking about the pushback that's coming simply as a dog whistle uh, concept to say 
Marxism and cultural Marxism bad, not biblical, and therefore should be rejected by Christians. Um, but in fairness, are we consistent with that application? We haven't done that with capitalism. Um, although some people have perhaps hold to this, that capitalism and materialism and money that we make and that economic model is somehow truly biblical, uh, that's going to be hard to find. Uh, we know that some of the roots of the originators of capitalism weren't Christian either. And yet, for some reason, and we can talk about this more, we embrace capitalism and democracy in these forms, and we reject Marxism and communism in all its forms, but we make the mistake of saying one is biblical, and that's why, and the other is not. I would argue that neither are biblical. So let's start there. What do you, what do you mean? You mean Adam Smith isn't part of God's word? I mean, just, you know, right? Because I think we, right. you're, you're so right, right? We, we think about capitalism as though it's just part of the gospel, part of Christianity. It's weird how sometimes we just get blind to certain things that we assume to be true, right? And like, so I love this idea of consistency that you bring up, Alex, because, mm. you know, we talk about if we took the worst examples of Marxism, right? And obviously they're, they're terrible things, obviously. Like, you know, we're talking about like genocide. We're talking about, you know, death camps. We're talking about all these terrible things. But what's weird, don't you think so, is that, is that we don't apply that idea to Christianity or the church. I mean, think about the worst thing that the church has done in the last 2,000 years. I mean, that's horrifying if we were just purely represented by the worst ideas without thinking about, uh, without thinking about the big picture. Oh, absolutely. I, you could look at Wall Street as an example of the worst picture of crony capitalism as uh, my friend Carl Ellis likes to refer to um, the problems of capitalism in and of itself as a structure, as a philosophical or an economic model may not be flawed, but we are living in a fallen world. And so any sort of system that is in place, this side of heaven, this side of glory will be flawed. And we'll probably get into this as well, but how our own doctrinal understandings and our own biblical approaches to understanding the world might even align with some theoretical frameworks that are quote unquote secular. I think that's an important part to discuss as well. I mean, both of us have reformed background and, you know, as a, as somebody in that tradition, I think about all truth being God's truth. Amen. We know that, we know that uh, scientific truth, it's truth, even though it might seem revelatory from the Bible, we say, no, that's, that's truth. There, there's actually true things in the world uh, that we can say that are, that have connection to the overall reality and truth of God, because we believe all truth is uh, from God in a sense, Right. I wonder what you thought about this because I thought about atheism uh, of Marxism, which is one of the one of the biggest uh, problems people talk about. And if you think about the history of the church, you know, during the French Revolution, church was on whose side? Well, the king, the, the king's side, right, against the people. Filthy rich church was there, right there on the wrong side. We think about Spanish Civil War, right? The church's support for General Franco once again on the wrong side. You think about the Re Re Russian Revolution, Russian Orthodox Church on the wrong side with, with the Tsar. We just have a long history of church being on the wrong side. We don't think about these things. I mean, 
you know, uh, what do you think about that? The fact that when people uh, critique Christianity and want to exert atheism, there's a reason why they do something like that. So good. Yes, that's right. Uh, if we only picked out the handful of folks that we identify with their philosophical tradition and therefore cancel it, it's a problem on all sides. But if you think about what, what is not being said, that some of the most staunch capitalists in American history are not Christian. I mean, they're not bearing the fruit of, of the gospel. They're not Christians. And yet, for some reason, we embrace it. So I would say, can we at least be consistent in our application, which we're not? And so I think we need to start there. I think it's important to make that distinction to say, um, even the roots of certain like you said before, ideologically different from the Bible does not mean that there aren't some aspects of truth that a Christian can glean from. Uh, the popular expression is eat the meat and throw away the bones. And, and so being able to do that, you know, I'll, I'll give one example if it's okay. I think about environmentalism and I think about recycling. And uh, right now it's not the hot topic of the day for Christians to politic against the environment. Maybe there are some, but I would imagine most Christian churches and families have the blue recycling bins that they use. Well, mm -hmm. if you get to the roots of some of the modern day environmental uh, lobbyists, they're not Christian. Fundamentally, they you know they don't believe in God. Uh, they're atheists. So by that logic, should we throw out um, recycling? And then all movements mm -hmm. toward environmental protection? Or can a Christian look at this and say, from a Christian viewpoint of stewardship of what the Lord has given in his cosmos and his created world, should we not take care as good stewards of the mm -hmm. land that we're called to be responsible for? So there we can see some alignment, uh, different yeah. motivations, but we can see some alignment. Right, right. Yeah, you know, um, I really appreciate what you said, you know, in one of our conversations, you said talking about critical race theory as opposed to opposed to what? Right? Oh, yeah, that's right. And your comment was this idea of uncritical. Well, yeah, if it's listen, critical, is it? Everybody has a theory on race, mm -hmm. right? Some people's theories are very uncritical, or some people's theories are race neutral. And if you believe that there is no more racism, in the world, as some people perhaps do, then they will chalk it up to personality to say that person's having a bad day. Mm -hmm. uh, that person is uh, just immature. Uh, there are lots of reasons that people give. That's their uncritical race theory. And now you have scholars who've been doing this work for generations now and being able to say, we see laws and policies being implemented because of racial animus. It's hard to deny it. And when you talk about chattel slavery, when you talk about the enslavement of Africans, when you talk about laws that excluded Chinese from coming to the United States to live, right? Uh, and many other examples that we could cover. And I know you've covered in other podcasts. My question back to people who say there's no racism and there's no systemic racism, how do you explain two things? One is, how do you explain these events in history? And two, how do you explain the sudden evolution that appeared that there is now no more racism in society when, we, when critical race theorists can point out all the different remnants of racist policies that are still in effect? 
Yeah, you know, I uh, when you talk about everybody having a race theory, I think about it as a theologian, like how everybody has theology. The question is how coherent or thought out your theology is, right? And that just because you don't study something, it doesn't mean you have one. So, and this idea of, I mean, we can talk about That's even good. perceptions of race neutral, right? Because you say, well, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna put race into it. Well. That's a decision too, right? There's a particular decision you're making and saying, I'm, I'm not going to think about it because I don't think it applies. That idea actually is fraught with so many presuppositions as well. That's good. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it's scary if someone says, I don't like the critical approach to thinking that is occurring. I want to be careful because I don't want to put people on blast, but I'm like, so you don't like critical thinking in your life, even as it applies to scripture? perhaps, um, as it applies to the application of scriptural commands in life, how could you say that you don't want to think critically? I think the problem is when people who are against critical race theory or against the idea that racism is still an ongoing issue in American society, we lump together everything that is uh, talking about race and racism as being critical race theory. Mm. And that's part of the problem. And it's not. Yeah, I mean, people, yeah, I mean, there are people who just do history and that's called critical race theory. And if you just even mentioned the fact that there is a, we have racial identities, I mean, that's considered a critical race theory. Everything is considered critical race theory now, even though there might actually not be any connection to it in terms of technically speaking. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting, you mentioned history. So let's talk about uh, Indigenous Peoples Day, formerly known as Columbus Day, uh, the way Christians and non-Christians alike in public schools and private schools, uh, Christian schools, were taught what? In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Uh, We know the names of the boats, the ships that they came in, but we don't know the names of the Indigenous people that lands were stolen from, right? That says everything about the way history was taught in schools. There are still people who are staunch proponents for Columbus Day to say that, you know, America was discovered uh, by these explorers. Uh, I'm working on my next book, so on this very topic. So uh, that's another conversation for another day. But if I were to push back and ask anyone to think critically Were there other people here when Columbus arrived and other explorers arrived? Mm. And if you say yes, and you say, where's their story in this history? And have we ever told the story from their perspective? Mm. You'd have to really deny that other people were here or in your own twisted interpretation of history to say they welcomed us they welcomed explorers (laughs) in they wanted these things or they were savages in need of reform in need of being civilized i mean if that's your ideology then that's where that's why you would defend some of these uh approaches i mean we're talking about a particular way of thinking right and i i kind of think about max hochmeyer's book critical theory just his series of essays and he compares traditional theory to critical theory, right? He says traditional theory is just trying to explain something and maybe in even a neutral way, but critical theory 
it thinks about liberation. It thinks about freedom. It thinks about the welfare of those people who are marginalized, who are being enslaved. And, and so it has a particular way of, and this is basically, I think the positive aspect of Marxism and saying, we're trying to fix something here because something is wrong and there are people being oppressed. It's not just us sitting in an armchair and thinking about these ideas. So this idea of trying to figure out what the problem is and how to fix it has to do with the roots of critical race theory. But, you know, like when, when you think about these things, why, why, can't, why can't we just think about people as people, right? Because if racism is a problem, why do we keep on talking about it? Maybe even if isn't talking about race, racist. I mean, that's one of the very common things that sometimes I hear from people. You know what? You're racist because you want to see me as an Asian American or as a black person. I don't see color. We should, especially as Christians, we definitely should see color because we want to get away from racism. The, way, the, way, the more we mention it, the more we feed it is basically what the idea is. Yeah. What do you, yeah. you know, what do you say to something like that? I'm sure you've, you've heard this before as well. Absolutely. I mean, that's a very common uh, retort and a defense to say, you keep talking about racism. That's why racism won't go away. Um, But again, we're inconsistent in that. If we stopped talking about racism, does racism end? That's what they're saying. Just stop talking about it. That is a classic example of conflict avoidance, if I've ever heard one. If we stop talking about world hunger, does world hunger go away? We stop talking about poverty. Does poverty go away? I wish that were true, but I don't think we can bury our heads in the proverbial sand and think that all of our problems are going to go away. It's avoidance. And it's a fundamental attribution error to say that the problem with racism is that people keep talking about racism. Please, if you're listening to this, I hope logically we can at least come to the same conclusion that that is not true. Hmm. I mean, there's, once again, we'll have multiple episodes talking about these things and we'll, we'll kind of circle around back to some of these ideas. But I mean, let's kind of talk about uh, how you got into this business, right? Because you've been, hmm. you've been in this critical race theory and talking about it in terms of education for a long time. Yeah. But what yeah. is, well, but maybe even before that, I mean, how do you, th- you came to understand God and you knew that calling was really significant, but now you're doing this. How does it all connect together? Your faith, your calling, and how does critical race theory end up being part of this whole thing? Oh, uh, we, I think you and I could talk about our own testimonies all day. Um, so yeah, I did not identify as a Christian growing up. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I got saved in college my first year. Uh, in college, and um, it was through campus ministry, and really in high school, a good friend of mine uh, was sharing the gospel with me on a regular basis. We got into lots of arguments, and it was very, very critical in my uh, development, so of those early seeds, but became a Christian in college and kind of went about my merry way as a Christian, but at the same time, growing up in a predominantly white school district, or I use the term dominantly white school district, because um, it's not just numbers of people. It's Mm. who's in control, right? What curricula we're using, who the who the leaders are, who are the people in power. So it was a dominant white uh, school system. And um, 
not until junior high school where I really started to understand what it meant to get racialized uh, mm. from people teasing me, making fun of my eyes or my hair or all these different accents. And then any caricature on television or a movie that appeared, um, that became my new nickname. Um, <laughs> so it, it was really a sad sort of story, but that got me understanding race because of racism. Mm. It got me to understand why people didn't like me and chose to tease me and bully me because I was Asian uh, or Korean. And so that was, uh, but I remember Jane Sammy Kim recently saying, uh, as a side note, where her mother said, uh, people are, are unkind to us and very cruel to us because we're Asian. And she corrected her mom and said, no, people are being unkind to us because they're racist. It's not because we're Asian. (laughs) Very important distinction. But I took the former and I said, it must Mm. be me. There Mm, must be something about me. So filled with self-hate, filled with self-doubt, longing to be white or black or anything but Korean wanting to divorce my heritage, my culture, my language, hating my parents for moving to the United States. I was born in the United States. And I could talk more about that as well. But hating myself and what I knew of God, hating God, who would be so cruel to create a a person to be teased like this. But Alex, I mean, it's kind of surprising because, you you know, in, in our previous conversations, I've learned the fact that you didn't grow up being like uber- Asian American, uber Korean. Like, how did that happen? Because, like, like you, I mean, because, like, me, like me, like you as well. Like, I thought about my Asian American identity, my Koreanness, as something that I didn't. That was a liability, right? That's it's something right. I didn't really want. But like, <laughs> when I first met you, I was like, this guy is like super Korean. It's like uber Korean. Like, he loves his Koreanness. How did that happen? Like, what was the journey? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Again, uh, so I shared earlier, my name is Alexander from the city I was born, Alexandria, Virginia. Consequently, my sister's middle name is Virginia. My father was a newspaper correspondent for the Chosun Daily News covering the Johnson administration and the White House back in the mid 60s. Um, And he had got married and had his two children and uh, wanted us to be very American. And my late father would regularly tell me, you're born in the United States. You could be president someday. Mm-hmm. Um, and filled my head with these beautiful patriotic dreams, you know, the American dream of you can be anything. And uh, I was quite proud of that and continue to be proud of my earthly citizenship um, as a U.S. citizen. But then all of these challenges with racism in my formative years in middle school and in high school uh, left me hating who I was, Mm. didn't want anything to do with Korean. And being born in the United States, my English, you know, I'm I'm a a fluent English speaker, a native English speaker, depending on, you know, where you fall on the linguistic line. Um, I've heard there's a big distinction between the two, but grow up speaking English and people would compliment me. And I used to think it was a compliment, Daniel, when people said, Mm. Alex, you you speak like white people. (laughs) Well, your English is so good. And this is from other Asian Americans who said this. 
And, you know, honestly, there are moments where I'm like, thank you. I work really hard within those first five seconds of a conversation with people to make sure they know that I could articulate very well. And then I, I, you know, I could speak well and I have good diction and all those types of things. I don't know how often I've actually revealed that. So now it's going on a podcast that you know millions <laughs> will hear, but it's true. But I don't know why I had divorced myself from all things Korean. And it took me years later to recognize how foolish of me, how foolish of me to give up the very things that God had given me. Was there a particular moment when that happened or or like some significant moments or did it just happen gradually for you just in terms of kind of recovering or affirming the fact that being Korean or being Asian is part of who you are in terms of your, your identity as a person and of course as a child of God? Now, this is my journey. It's different from other Korean American friends who grew up in the Korean church and carry a lot of unfortunate baggage. Uh, But for me, not being uh, born in the church and not in a Christian home, coming to faith in college, my friend who shared the gospel with me was white. We'd talk about racial dynamics, but he was race blind or race neutral in his approach. So when I'd ask these questions, he spoke from a, you know, a, a good God loving white guy. And he just, mm. he had no criticality on this. And so mm. I said, well, I thought God can answer all these questions, but the only Christians I knew were people who never addressed race and racism. Mm. <laughs> um, I got saved through a, a Korean campus ministry group. My first church experience and my first uh, foyer into Christianity was through Korean American Christians. Um, and the first church I went to was full gospel, Los Angeles. It was Mm. on first in Vermont back in the day (laughs) in K town. It was one of those churches where, uh, the college group was half English, half Korean. It was a one point fob group. Um, (laughs) You couldn't start a sentence in one language and end it in the same language. It was very fluid, but I think it was critical for me at that point. And they weren't critical race theorists or anything. They just embraced the Imago Dei. They embraced that they were Korean. Now, mind you, we had white Jesus statues and pictures everywhere (laughs) in our Korean church, but that's another story for another time. But they did embrace their Korean heritage and their language. And that was important for me because then I saw that there could be synergy between the two. You know, I've heard pieces of this thing, but I would like to hear it because there's this journey where you've come to understand the importance of race and, you know, white racism, white dominance in education. And you talk about this is, is part of uh, happening along with your doctoral studies. I mean, can you talk, tell us more about that? Because this is a critical point when you start, there's like a switch, like there's like a paradigm in terms of how you think about education, right? Because it, it's that's happened right. with your doctoral work. And then what, has, what happened afterwards? Can you tell us more about that? Absolutely. Again, it's always good to do these on public airways and podcasts just to make all my stuff plain and known. Uh, A (laughs) confession, you know, uh, someone who longed to be and be accepted by white people and white culture, a good old American boy, you know, uh, voting Republican um, and holding to some of these very, very well-established, quote unquote, traditional um, views. Um, against 
affirmative action, saying it's all by individual work. So what's going on today, you know, with Larry Elder, who I used to listen to a lot, um, <laughs> and lots of other folks like him, uh, talk radio hosts, because that was my daily uh, feeding. Then I get into a PhD program. I'm working with um, progressive academics who helped me understand. And I thought I had to fight against this, like feminism and um, some of these lefty liberal concepts like diversity. And I, that was me, that was me, mm. even as early as my early doctoral program. And coming to realize how limited my thinking was, how uncritical my thinking was. My dissertation topic, just for a hot second, I'll share. I, it was an anthropological ethnic, ethnographic study of five first-generation Latinx students going to college. And I celebrated the individual achievements. And my dissertation, later published as my first book, was on their stories. And I said, look, let's find all the things that were good about what they did. It was almost like its own model minority stereotyping hmm. to say, let's focus on good, brown, educated, first-generation, low-income students. What I failed to do, and this is much to my chagrin, I look back and I never questioned the overwhelming system of whiteness that was in place that hmm. created systems where students went to impoverished public schools and had a harder time academically. And it wasn't because they were incapable of being successful. It was uh, a lot of the systems that were in place. That led to a lot of changes um, in my thinking. I have one more story. And that's by, by the time I got to APU and I was teaching um, PhD students from across the country, uh, leaving a secular institution like USC and coming to what I thought was my home and my, my people, my family, other Christians, I realized what a disconnect I had with mostly white, but not all white, doctoral students who were running Christian institutions who not only held this worldview, but they reified it, right? Mm. They perpetuated it in their positions, in their roles and authority. And the pushback was tremendous, at least when I talked about racism with my secular progressive friends, we were in alignment and in agreement, although the motivation for me as a Christian was different. And so I think that's what really led in the last five or six years of my research focusing on addressing systems of racism and racial injustice, but also doing it from a Christian lens. Right. I mean, when you say uh, they verified a particular idea, you're talking about this liberal kind of individualism, the fact that it's not about systems, it's just about how hard people work, right? That's yes. what we're talking about. Now, the, do you feel like, yeah, go ahead. You got the myth of meritocracy, you've got rugged individualism or hyper-individualism, uh, scriptural application or misapplication. Oh, scripture says there is no longer a Jew or Greek uh, you know, and so the application there, interpretation is I don't see color. The greatest compliment people seem to give is, Alex, when I see you, I don't see Korean. I don't see an Asian. Wow. I, how is that a compliment? How does that not deny the existence of Imago Dei, that I was made in God's image? And it's a God who makes no mistakes. What do you think about, I mean, somebody might be thinking, well, uh, Alex, you were just brainwashed by Liberal Academy. Right? How does this connect to your faith as a Christian? I mean, you, you mentioned that about the Michael Day, but how does this connect to faith? And when, we, when we're thinking about uh, meritocracy or working hard or um, all those views, 
uh, that you have um, transitioned into? Like, yeah. how does that make sense for you? That's a great question. Um, I know brainwashing is a complicated word because some would say if you have a steady diet of Fox News, you also are brainwashed. Perhaps everybody has certain level of being brainwashed. I like the term sanctification. I like the <laughs> yeah. idea that God and the Holy Spirit working in me gave me a deeper sense of empathy and God gave me a deeper critical mind the more I studied. Um, there's not a day where it doesn't go by where I'm reading scripture along with reading academic texts. So that's been my, my regular diet. And so uh, from an academic perspective, how does one overcome the other? And it's dangerous to think, I, I really want to challenge some of my Christian brethren who think that secular ideology could simply overthrow the Holy Spirit's work <laughs> day in, day out, Bible studies, discipleships, and good sermons that are being preached every Lord's Day. Is it that? Is it that fragile? Is our faith that fragile that mm. all it took was a couple secular ideological books and concepts to somehow dismantle years and years of, of Christian education? I don't think so. Mm. So there has to be some sort of merger, uh, some sort of convergence that occurs that we have to wrestle with as a Christian and as a, as a thinking Christian. Right. And, and that we can't really... There's no simple escape from the world. It's not like I'm going to sit there and be now not part of the world, not part of the philosophical systems because we're in the church, because that obviously is already in our churches, right? I mean, yeah. American Christianity is a particular, has particular philosophical underpinnings that we might not see. It's already just there already. Either we see it critically or we just close, close our eyes to it and say, it's just me and the Bible without realizing the fact that how we look at the Bible, what we assume to be true, what we, what, the kind of questions we act, the kind of things that assumptions we have. They're just all part of what's happening, uh, whether we like it or not. That's right. That's right. We will continue on, right? So with later episodes, we will cover you know, whiteness. What is that all about? White supremacy, because that get, work gets kicked around a lot it's complicating let's unpack that idea of social justice intersectionality i mean in terms of even idea of ethnic church or multi multi-ethnic churches what does critical race theory what should we do with you know, what's happening in our schools or churches or even cancel culture there's so many different topics that this, all this is stirred up and of course you know world is changing so fast i mean i have a hard time catching up right even even though i studied some of this stuff academically so we'll cover these things one at a time and we're just really excited to continue the conversation and have all of the out there listeners joining in. Thank you so much. This has been Centering, the Asian American Christian podcast. Thank you for joining us. Please tune in each week as we continue to discuss race and grace. And remember, God loves and embraces all of who you are.